Confession time, Liberty Chroniclers. I really don't like military history. I find the subject wholly distasteful. None of it smells quite right to me. I'm much more comfortable handling the ideas that lead to war than picturing the actual battles. And then I recently visited New Orleans for a Liberty Fund conference, where I heard a most unusual approach to this wearisome subject. Mark Smith holds a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, where he is the Carolina Distinguished Professor of History. He's a leading figure in what's called sensory history, and he joins me now in my attempt to give you the grittiest military history I can, you know, without actually having to do the nasty business myself. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. So first off, Professor Smith, can you tell us what exactly is this field of sensory history and why is it important? Uh, well, I mean, even the even the deployment of the term field can be a bit misleading. I think of it more as a habit of writing history. I don't think that it's a particular field insofar as um, virtually every historian from every period from ancient Rome to modern Germany, of gender, race, class, intellectual historians, cultural historians, even economic historians. They can all deploy sensory history um, because it's a way of looking at very familiar sources and teasing out the sensate that's embedded and contained in those sources. So I don't really think of it as a field as much. Certainly some people would refer to it as such, but I think it's more of a habit. It's a kind of retraining of your eye in an effort to harvest the nose and the ears um, because it doesn't limit itself um, to one particular area of inquiry. So that would be the first point I'd make. Um, and obviously it's, it's effort is to tell us something about the way that people in the past uh, not only saw the world, which we know a great deal about, of course, uh, but heard it, smelled it, tasted it, and touched it, and how those senses intermingled, how they were intersensory, sometimes uh, in a singular sense. And this is important because if we were to imagine our understanding of ourselves at this very moment in time simply through the eyes we'd have a very impoverished experience and understanding of that moment of that place I and mean, this is not a presenter's conceit but it is a human one insofar as we do process information we do make judgments we do construct categories through multiple senses and to think that our ancestors, wherever they may have been and when, didn't, um, I think is a almost sort of arrogant assumption about the nature of the past. So why is it important? Well, it's important because it restores something about the depth and the texture of human experience. So that's a very long-winded answer to your very good question, Anthony. Well, so it strikes me as being very similar to a couple other different approaches, uh, either methods or, or full methodologies like uh, history from below. 
Now, it's not necessarily about working people or marginalized people, but it does build up the human experience from the very base materials of sense experience. Um, it seems similar to a lot of world history that you might read. And yet it's also, like, like I was indicating, sort of hyper-individualized, that it's always individuals experiencing with their senses. Uh, so could you comment on, you know, does this fit in as sort of a, do you think of it as a type of history from below or a type of world history, um, a type of liberal history? Um, that's a very good question because years ago um, when I started thinking about the censors, I uh, did a bit of interrogation of, you know, earlier historians, which I think is always very important and probably not done enough. Um, we seem to often fall into the trap of thinking that we've invented something when, in fact, there have been important antecedents. So, you know, I, I, I rummaged around in the old social history, and I found that social historians had done a great deal to attend to the censors. Um, the Anal School, in particular, was very important for that. Uh, and some very early history, in fact, um, you know, from the from the nineteenth, early nineteenth century, had had at least attended to or noted the importance of things other than eyes. But um, I came to the conclusion that it's not strictly a social history project, um, basically because I don't think it's just about history from the bottom up. I mean, if you think of some of the most um, impressive work on the history of the censors. Uh, it's largely a, an intellectual history. Um, we have the history of religion as understood through the censors. We have the history of the Enlightenment as understood through the censors. Um, these projects aren't necessarily indexed exclusively or even especially heavily uh, from the, the bottom up. Um, they, they attempt to understand the full range of sensory perceptions, deployments uh, from elites from all sorts of classes. And, and as an intellectual history project, these things do work. So I'm not sure if it's, if it's just that. Is it global history? Well, certainly it lends itself to a kind of roving itinerant quality. Um, any place, any time is obviously subject to the census simply because people do process information through the census. They might do it differently at different points in time. Um, they might have different ratios, if you will. But I think it's really a, a global history in that sense. It's not trying to make necessarily kind of transnational connections, although it could do, and some work has done. Um, is it hyper-individualized? Well, to the extent that all history is, to some extent, hyper-individualized because it's contingent on the sources that you're reading. So if somebody says, you know, in a diary, well... Uh, Paris smelt you know, like this, or London sounded like this. Well, obviously, to that person's ears and nose, that's what that meant. But like with all history, it's an attempt to find pattern and recurrence and theme and identifiable coordinates that repeat themselves so you can get a sense of a, of a more general understanding of what an age, rather than just an individual, understood. And if you do enough of it, um, you can get beyond a hyper-individualized history to a sense of what a particular class felt or what a particular um, gender felt at a particular moment in time in a particular place. So there is a particularity to it and an important one at that. I think this has to be highly contextualized because the senses, in my estimation, are not transcendent. They're not universal. Uh, what smells in 1600 
doesn't smell the same way or have the same meaning as it does in 1950, for example, because constituents change, habits of olfaction change, and judgments change. And, of course, places change. So I'm not sure if it's any of those things, really, which is why I think of it as a habit rather than a field. Um, I don't think it fits very tidily or neatly into the field category. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I think of it more of a kind of thematic uh, way of understanding history, a bit like, say, economic history, which could conceivably be applied to all times and places, right? Um, it's political history, it's intellectual history, it's more along those lines than a particular geography or temporal designation. Now, I did uh, promise my listeners uh, sort of my excuse for military history because it's, it's not my field at all. Um, and I loved your early comment in the book that, you know, historians debate, oh, was was the American Civil War the first uh, 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 or was it a was it a total war in the sense of sort of the Napoleonic Wars or something? World War Two uh, is the whole society mobilized to fight this war and win it. Um, and you make the excellent point that, uh, quote, as far as the census are concerned, all war is total war. And then you spend the book going through uh, five or six key events scattered across the war, uh, each highlighting a different sort of sensory experience. Uh, and by the end, I think you know readers will certainly agree that for the senses, all war is definitely total war. So I, I want to just spend the rest of the interview going through those uh, moments of great sensory experience and overload. Um, and let's let's go ahead and start. With the whoop and the holler raised in Charleston after mm -hmm. the Declaration of Secession in December 1860, can you describe the scene to us? Yeah. So, <laughs> by way of full disclosure, um, I don't fancy myself a military historian either. <laughs> uh, not least because it's actually very difficult. I mean, there is a great deal of detail involved in these things that required me to rely very much on my colleagues in military history. Um, who do fabulous work, often unheralded, but nonetheless terribly important for what I was doing. This isn't just a, a straightforward cultural or social history project. This required me to really get to grips with how troops marched, what they did in battle, uh, when they did it, and why it mattered. So the book begins, um, and of course, I, I selected really the most famous instances and events of the Civil War, really to make a point that these are the most well-known events in the Civil War. Succession, Gettysburg, Vicksburg. People know about these things, but do they really know about them? And so I chose things that are very obvious for the most part in an effort to retell a story that is so familiar that we slip into an assumption that we know it already. So the book begins um, with a listening Hey, listening to how people heard uh, the extraordinary event of succession from the Union beginning in December 1860. And in fact, I go a bit back beyond, before that to kind of give you a sense of what a normal soundscape in Charleston sounded like. And to do that, I have to, to listen to other people listening and to recreate some of the sounds and the listening habits of people at the time. Um, but essentially what happens when South Carolina succeeds 
from the union is a is an extraordinary, if you will, turning up of the volume. Um, we have what are ordinarily kind of bustling but probably quiet streets suddenly explode in this cacophonous shout that South Carolina has left the union. And these sounds reverberate. Um, it, between December 1860 and the firing on Fort Sumter, there are obviously quiet moments, but it is my belief that for the most part, the city experienced this, this turning up of the volume in which listening habits changed, uh, volume changed, sounds were new. I mean, nobody had heard the sound of the firing on Fort Sumter or anything like its acoustic register, its decibels, in their lifetimes. I mean, this was a new sound, and this was something that was both exciting, shocking, disturbing, and uh, people commented on this at great length. So it wasn't, and of course, I'm not excluding the way that the event looked, but to get a full understanding of the kind of emotional uh, landscape, you have to have to understand how people heard their environment as well as saw their environment. And of course, we're talking about multiple environments here too. So we have Union uh, Federal Forces on Fort Moultrie who have to make it to Fort Sumter. And they do so um, by not being noisy, by deploying stealth, by uh, quietening their oars, by tamping down the sounds that they're making. So we have a bunch of new soundscapes, a bunch of new registers that kind of mark the war, the beginning of the war, and in a way foretell what the war is going to sound like uh, for the next four years. This is a very loud event in American history, not constantly, of course, uh, but an event that nonetheless uh, changes the soundscape of the places where the war is fought. I love this idea that you have a revolutionary sound accompanying this revolutionary moment of the Confederacy forming, uh, at least in, in its nascent form with South Carolina. Um, and it really – they say they're doing it for conservative reasons, but it really truly does become a revolutionary experiment um, right down to socialism and everything. Um, and you know, a, a common sort of neo-Confederate trope about secession is that uh, if – if it did have anything to do with slavery, most Southerners really didn't support slavery. So they kind of had nothing to do with this. They were being led into it by the political class, the great planters. Um, and you know, it was, it was really their failure. But then again, if, if this revolutionary sound of, of hollering in praise of, the, of secession from the streets of Charleston, if, if that has anything to, to do with it, well, we, we might start thinking a little differently. Um, and I, I just I find that idea of a revolutionary sound very compelling. Reflects well, the voice, something real. The voices of non-slaveholders um, uh, were absolutely necessary to to making that chorus heard. Um, simply because the slaveholders were in a numerical majority, so if it were only their voices calling for succession, it would have been a quieter event. Now, what these voices are calling for precisely varies. Uh, depending on on who, obviously, but nonetheless, uh, this is a revolutionary moment. You're right, Anthony, and it's a revolutionary moment acoustically as well as ideologically. Uh, 
Now, your your uh, visual chapter on First Bull Run, I think, is your most sort of straightforwardly military history. At least it has. Mm-hmm. It seems to have the most to do with the actual course of a battle and the kinds of things that commanders have to consider when they're directing troops. And uh, to me, the most compelling sort of set of discussions in there was how the different uh, uh, participants or observers of the battle occupied different visual spaces in the battleground, and they went away from it with very different perspectives and outlooks on the war. Could you comment on their, the levels of perspective at first bull run? Yes. So one of the important things I think about writing this book, for me at least, um, was to contextualize what was happening. And to do that, um, you have to understand something about the way that the census functioned in a almost banal everyday uh, way prior to the Civil War. So like most people in the West at the time, just before the Civil War broke out, most people believed that the eye was the preeminent um, sense. Uh, there's a reason why people said that seeing was believing and not smelling was believing or hearing was believing. And we can talk about why that was, uh, if you'd like. Um, but essentially, when Americans go into the Civil War, they do believe that seeing is believing, that their eyes are the arbiters of truth, that they are the sense, is the sense of perspective. It is the sense that conveys reliably information. And of course, there was a lot of truth to that, and there remains a lot of truth to that. But it's precisely that faith, that almost fetish in the power of the eye to reveal truth, that shapes the outcome of the first major battle of the Civil War, or First Bull Run, or First Manassas, depending where you're from. And the reason why is um, there were lots of perspectives at Bull Run. I mean, think about the topography. You have people on the ridges looking down like a, at a panorama. Um, you have people on the field, and their vision is obviously much more is much different. I mean, they have smoke, they have trees, there are things, barriers in the way to clear vision. But the most important misreading or misseeing occurred on the charge for Henry House Hill, which was a very important moment. Uh, not just in the Battle of First Bull Run, but arguably the Civil War, because think about the proximity of Manassas to uh, Richmond. You know, we're not that far away. And had the Federals taken Henry House Hill, there is a good chance that they would have gone on to Richmond and this war would have turned out either very differently or a lot shorter. But they didn't. They didn't take that hill. Because as they were running up the hill in an effort to take it, it wasn't that just, just that uh, Stonewall Jackson appears at the top, but he's heading a regiment to hold the hill that is wearing blue, blue uniforms. And because seeing was believing, because sight was the arbiter of truth, those federal troops running up that hill stuttered and they stopped. And they slowed down because they saw blue uniforms. And they thought, well, reasonably, my eyes are telling me the truth. These are uh, federal troops. And so their march, their their attempt to take the hill, was um, paused uh, 
quite literally, people stopped. And they were, of course, wrong. Their eyes had betrayed them. As Stonewall Jackson well knew, these were militia uniforms from a Virginia regiment um, that wore blue. This is before uniforms were standardized, at least in any broad sense, but there was a belief among uh, soldiers that Confederates wore gray and Union forces wore blue. And because they stopped and stuttered, um, Jackson's forces were able to pretty much mow them down and the retreat back to Washington, D.C. began in earnest and the hill was, was saved and um, the battle was won by Confederates. I, I note with interest that Stonewall Jackson knew full well what he was doing, or at least I think he did. Um, he, he knew that there would be a visual stuttering, a visual confusion, because he had his own troops wear cotton armbands um, to distinguish them from real federal uniforms. And so there was lots of play here with the eye. There was lots of belief in the eye on the, on the part of some federal troops and lots of playing on that belief in the eye by uh, Confederate troops in an effort to gain a tactical and strategic advantage. So they're marching in with an assumption, a, a visual conceit, and that conceit ultimately, at least in my opinion, helps lead to the Confederate victory at first Bull Run. So that's where that's coming from, Anthony. It's a, it's a kind of deeper reading of the history of seeing and the instability of vision in the context of war. Now, like you said, uh, we sort of privilege sight. There's this kind of tyranny of the scene uh, that takes over our rendition of people's sensory experiences. But all sorts of senses come into play all the time. And, you know, you, the Battle of Gettysburg is the smell chapter. And I don't want to dwell too much on the smells of Gettysburg themselves. Uh, but I do want to tease out this thread of the tyranny of the scene. Because as you say in the chapter, the, the pictures, the photographs taken of the dead at Gettysburg were not actually dead. Uh, could you tell us a, a bit about this phenomenon of the, the photographs at Gettysburg? It's tricky, isn't it? Because we, we all bring our certain conceits to our writing and there is a certain artificiality to the way I've divided those chapters up because plainly Gettysburg wasn't just about smell. It was about lots of other senses too. But I'm looking for a signature, something that kind of captures the essence of the experience. And if, you, if we simply view Gettysburg... As, a, as an optic, as a visual event, um, through the lens, quite literally, uh, of photographs, not all of which, but some of which were contrived and staged and full of artifice, then you walk away with an understanding um, that this was a very big battle um, and that lots of people died. Um, but there's a kind of no attached to it, I think, um, in a still photograph. Uh, it, it doesn't capture the full extent and depth of the experience of what it must have been like to be on that battlefield uh, in those days of 1863. So what I try to do is marry the the photographs, whether or not they were contrived, because some of them weren't, plainly the, the pictures of the dead horses, which also mattered a great deal, were not contrived. Um, but I tried to marry what 
the, the sights of that event were, that tyranny of the eye, and I dilute it with the authenticity of the nose. Because as people understood at the time, um, you have eyelids. Eyelids frame, they deflect, they deny, they open. That you know, the Vision is a highly selective exercise, whereas there are no such thing as nose lids. Smell is transgressive. It punches its way in. You have to smell if you are going to breathe. And when, when you begin a kind of olfactory history of Gettysburg, you really realize the scale of this thing, the thousands of deaths, the technology of death outstripped the technology of burial. They simply couldn't bury the horses, the men quickly enough. And as a result, in those very hot days, um, the, the the not just the entire um, arena of Gettysburg stank, but it it, tra- it it moved beyond its geography. It went into places that were removed from the battlefield, um, punching its way into noses far removed from the original site. I mean, it might be apocryphal, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. But Lincoln, during the Gettysburg Address, is said to have commented that he could still smell the death of this event. And there is no choice but to smell it. And it's not that there are lots of different subtle smells. Um, there were some variations of smell, medical smells, smells of death and what have you, smells of horse versus smells of man. But what we're really talking about here is the sheer scale and its utter insistence on kind of personalizing the experience, because everybody who was there um, had to smell death. And while people in 1863 certainly had different olfactory expectations and aesthetics than we would do today, for example, um, nobody had experienced death on that scale before. Um, very, very rarely had and has anyone smelt so many thousands of rotting carcasses um, in a very hot environment, very humid environment uh, for so long. And it's interesting to me because this also speaks to this question of um, historical memory and historical authenticity when it comes to recreating uh, battles from the Civil War. So if we look at what veterans from Gettysburg said upon revisiting the fields in 1912, um, they said, well, you know, it looks it looks the same in many ways. Um, this is where we were. But the big difference is that I can't smell the battle. I can't smell the gunpowder and I can't smell the death. And this raises an important question, I think, for historical reenactment. Um, if, if we want authentic reenactment of Civil War battles such as Gettysburg, we're going to have to rethink about what authenticity is and whether or not it's achievable and whether or not it's desirable to be achievable. Um, Because you cannot recreate that stench and you probably shouldn't want to. And so that's one of the, the reasons or the motivations behind this book too. It's a cautionary tale about a usable history, I suppose. Um, simply because the senses, the way they're produced and the way they're consumed, are very much hostage to their own moment and don't really travel or transcend time. There's not a universality. There might be a universality to the act of smelling, uh, 
but the, the, the meaning of smell changes quite significantly um, depending upon where you are and when you are. So that's really what's going on with that chapter. Um, it's a kind of obvious point at a certain level that battles smell. But what I was trying to get to was just how meaningful that experience was and how sight alone um, limits our access to understanding the depth and scope of that meaning. Now, I hope that uh, maybe we could treat the next two chapters together because uh, I think these are the two where I learned the most new material. Um, your chapter on Vicksburg is about taste or hunger and your chapter on the Hunley submarine is about touch. And uh, in the Vicksburg chapter, we have the city under siege, um, besieged by Grant. And you tell us about how the South's proudest planters and all of their families were ultimately reduced to living in caves and some of them even eating grass like cattle. And uh, they had built southern civilization on the backs of slaves, but it all melted away uh, during the siege. And you know the way you put it is basically they receded back about 10,000 years into uh, the uh, pre-agricultural days of, of human past. And, and then in the Hunley, we have this great comparison of men packed into this first submarine just as their ancestors had packed slaves into ships for the Middle Passage. And they're on this suicide mission to achieve some, some sort of independence for their country, uh, putting themselves in the exact same kinds of conditions uh, for the slaves that they expected to remain enslaved. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in those two chapters. Um, but ultimately, I think you're entirely right. The thread uh, is the contemporary recognition that slavery inflects pretty much everything. This is a slave society, not a society with slaves, but a slave society. And it's a deeply embedded in the way that people understand their experiences, their sense of progress, their sense of atavism, their sacrifices. Slavery haunts um, human experience in the Civil War in the South in a very powerful way. So Vicksburg is a good illustration of this because I begin that chapter with a um, fairly clumsy but nonetheless, I think, accurate sort of overview of what people ate before Vicksburg or before the siege. And given its location on the Mississippi, its, its cuisine was quite remarkable, um, especially for elites. So elites had access to all sorts of food, fish, meat, um, vegetables that were couriered up and down the Mississippi River um, and harvested from their local plantations. So if you look at menus, uh, you know, you'd want to eat in Vicksburg in 1860 if you were an elite um, southerner. Uh, if you were poor white, uh, you ate less well which was typical throughout the entire South. And if you were enslaved, you ate uh, less well than that. So the question is, um, what does a siege do to the palate? And, you know, this is essentially why this is total war. <laughs> this isn't about uh, shooting people necessarily, although certainly people are shot and bombarded during this siege. This is about reducing people to their core essence. And you can do that through starvation and radically altering their diet. But the people who were used to using diet as both a gustatory uh, as well as aesthetic 
way of tasting. That is to say, they ate and they ate well, and therefore they were better, and it was tightly indexed to their sense of social class and standing. To have your palate reduced radically and very quickly in this 30-day siege um, was psychologically quite devastating as well as physically quite devastating. Because ultimately what these planters had to do was end up like slaves. Their, their, their palates were reduced to those of slaves. Their consumption was reduced to those of slaves. I mean, here we have people you know, buying rat meat and mule meat and dog meat. This was not something that elites were accustomed to. Um, not just planters, but merchants and bankers and people of elite status in Vicksburg. And yes, they're eating grass and gnawing them shoe leather. So in, in, in a way, this is um, a radical devolution for them in terms of class because they are now uh, engaging in a kind of gustatory experience that they had always reserved for uh, people of lesser status, poor whites and the enslaved. And this is something that they'd use to demarcate themselves. It's also an atavism temporally um, because this is a has a kind of medieval quality to it where their you know their sense of progress is challenged they're having to um ferret out morsels of unsavory food and even the sentinel of the nose is not enough to stop them from eating the nose tells them how rancid and dangerous this food is which is one of its functions and yet the starvation is so great that they consume it and become ill through it and then, of course, they, they literally dig through time when they build their caves to defend themselves against the bombardment and the siege. And they're literally, they're literally cutting through and digging through historical time. They're going back in time into the caves. And there's a, there's a kind of radical sense of devolution for these people, which is why when the siege finishes, um, Vicksburg doesn't celebrate July the 4th, which is when the siege ends, for years, uh, the city simply refuses to celebrate it because rather than an act of you know, day of independence, um, to them, this was the culmination of utter dependence. And dependency was honor. And honor was rooted in the ownership of slaves and the ability to make choices, gustatory and otherwise. And a similar development occurs with the Hunley. And, you know, the H.L. Hunley submarine was one of those remarkable Confederate inventions that gives lie to the idea that the South was some pre-modern institution. I mean, slavery was obviously an ancient institution, but it didn't necessarily mean that uh, it was devoid of any scientific acumen. And I, my own earlier work on the history of slavery suggests that plantations were very much like factories, at least in terms of the productive capacity and punctuality and temporality. And you see this during the war with this um, H.O. Hunley submarine, which worried the, uh, the Union forces, and rightly so, because this was, this was an invisible craft. And it turned out to be the world's first successful combat submarine when it sinks the um, USS Housatonic in February 1864 in Charleston Harbor. The thing that interests me about it was its its physicality. It was a very small submarine. You have eight white men crammed in there, and their job 
is to propel this craft forward. And the front of the submarine is a very long kind of spear, if you will, with a charge attached to the front. The idea is to ram it into the hull of the Housatonic and then back out um, and ignite the charge, if you will. Um, it was a hand-cranked machine. You know, if, if you look at the way that the crank was formed and designed, it's very much like a cotton gin. You turn it, and you turn it fast. And this was the kind of labor ordinarily reserved for the enslaved. And you, you're right to make the comparison between uh, the middle passage and the tightness of the Hunley, because they were both extraordinarily tight. But here you had free white men voluntarily surrendering their sense of physical space. Um, their arms rubbed against one another, against the, the, the iron hull. Um, there were knuckle marks um, throughout the submarine and the wood. I mean, this was a, a, an abuse of the skin that white men ordinarily weren't used to. This was something that was typically reserved for the enslaved skin, which was presumed to be tougher and thicker and more durable, which was one of the conceits of the pro-slavery ideologues um, about why slavery was appropriate for uh, African-American people. So you have this very odd circumstance in which the desire to win, the desire um, to participate in this, this very modern piece of technology, the desire to, to, to persecute the Confederate war effort to, to sink this ship, um, led essentially free white men to voluntarily um, put themselves in a circumstance, a tactile circumstance, a haptic circumstance that was ordinarily reserved for uh, enslaved people. Um, as you know, it, it did sink the Housatonic, um, but the Hunley sank too. And a lot of my work was based on and indebted to um, the folks that run the um, the Hunley uh, Museum down in Charleston, um, who have done tremendous work, um, not only recovering the submarine, but telling us something about the men who were in that submarine. There was really only one elite person there. That was the captain, George Dixon. The others um, were of more humble origin, um, some immigrants, one merchant perhaps, uh, but they weren't rich men. They were average poor white men or of middling sorts um, who were willing to uh, put themselves in a, an extraordinarily frightening position in a way, but also um, in a position that most white people never found themselves in. Now, I suppose just to close this out here, I wonder if I could get your comment because, again, I, I think that – these two chapters especially and your last chapter on Sherman's March to the Sea, um, <clears throat> they <laughs> – to borrow a phrase from the English Revolution, uh, they, they all illustrate that the world was totally turned upside down and that this, this conflict, the Civil War, secession, the existence of the Confederacy, all of these, these moments were really truly revolutionary. Uh, and they turn society inside out and upside down, like f relatively few events throughout history actually do. It, it does. Um, I mean, this is you know, arguably the defining moment of the 19th century for Americans and possibly the history outside of the American Revolution. Um, I think all wars at a certain level are 
extraordinarily sensory um, because the, some of the technologies deployed to prosecute war are, are designed and inevitably affect the censors. But when, when Sherman marches through the South, um, places that had remained peripheral to the sensory experience of war suddenly found themselves in the midst of it. And this is what makes it a total war in a sense, because there was no longer any home front um, once once the, the front had come to the home. And my reading of the sources on this was that people who were in Sherman's uh, field, within his, his marching field, experienced kind of battle-like conditions in a sensory way. Um, for example, they often heard him a long time before they, they saw him. I mean, we're talking about thousands of men um, marching through the southern countryside, and they literally create the sound of a tramp, um, a march, and you hear them, and that had to be quite terrifying for people. And then, of course, you saw them, which was uh, a visual novelty too. Nobody who had um, been, for example, in Columbia, South Carolina, where I live, Nobody had really, unless they'd been to a battlefront, had seen so many uh, Union troops before. Um, and then when, once they descended upon your town or your, your plantation, there was the same kind of um, taste deprivation that people in Vicksburg had experienced because these troops had to be fed and they took the food from plantations and towns and people were left with a very impoverished mm-hmm. diet. Um, and then, of course, there's also the, the, the question of you know, smell, and the smell was from the sheer numbers of, of troops involved, uh, garbage rotting, um, but also the idea that um, there was a fire, uh, and fire always produced a kind of um, lingering stench that uh, people recognized, and it was the, the smell of the destruction of their own civilization. So when Sherman left, um, he didn't really leave. He was still lingering in the air. And so in that sense, there was a very multi-sensory component to Sherman's march, and that's really what I was trying to show in that chapter, as a kind of total multi-sensory, intersensory experience that capped the Civil War and um, uh, kind of concluded it in some ways. There's lots I don't say in that book, of course, and I don't really talk about the North or Reconstruction. Um, this book was really an invitation to open up something of a conversation. Um, but that's why I elected to end it, because it seemed darkly poetic. All history is a string of sense perceptions linked together by individual minds in meaningful patterns we call moments, minutes, hours, days, months, years, wars, eras, periods, ages, and so on. And it's more than just the familiar senses. What about the sense of the word sense in which we sense new ideas in the air? We feel that we make choices and change our world along the way. History is sensation. And all sensation is done by the fundamental units of the human species, the individual. I'm not saying that sensory history is some sort of proof for methodological individualism, but it is certainly suggestive. So our greatest thanks once again to Professor Mark Smith for joining us and for his book, The Smell of Battle, The Taste of Siege, A Sensory History of the Civil War. 
Thanks for listening. Liberty Chronicles is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Liberty Chronicles, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. 